The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, we speak to the novelist Samantha Harvey about her memoir of insomnia, The Shapeless Unease. But first... Her knowledge is vast, her hand reaches out and pulls the spine of a beautifully bound book of delights picked especially for me. Ooh, I'm so in a shop with books, in a shop with books, in a shop with books, in a shop with books. Did that little doozy of a tune give you a hint as to what I'm about to discuss? We're talking bookshops, of course. It's January and it's dark, and so here is some good news. Independent bookshops are on the up. Yay! Yay! (laughs) What's the story, Richard? Uh, Well, the Booksellers Association figures reveal that last year 890 bookshops were existing in the UK. That's independent bookshops, of course. This is an increase of just seven shops, with some closing and more opening and so on, but this is the third year in a row of increases. This is after a 20-year decline. Back in 1995, there were 1,894 shops. Uh, there were fewer then every year, every year, every year, people uh, lose, going out of business, bookshops closing, until rock bottom was reached in 2016 with 867. Then in 2017, there was one, yes, count it, one more. <laughs> I remember when we did that news story and I was trying to explain to everyone why it was such a big event. I was like, one bookshop opened last yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Been... And then there was a massive 15 more in 2018 and now the third year in a row back another seven so back up to 890 so there you go it's definitely true that's pretty good so the rock bottom in 2016 was 867 and now we're on 890 so that's that's a nice uh, little increase over three years there was there's a a, a bookshop near me um which was called the big green bookshop Mm. in wood green in north london which is one of my favorites which closed yes. in January and went online only and it led me to wonder whether actually most of these had opened out of big city centres is that right? Well quite a lot of the shops that did open in 2019 were outside of London um, of course it's a, a, a sort of net gain of seven uh, shops so there are more than seven uh, bookshops independent bookshops that opened last year um, but the overall uh, increase is by seven shops. So what what do we think is going on here? Well I mean this is sort of a conversation that has been had I think sort of more widely about UK high street so obviously the, the UK high street's in quite a lot of trouble at the moment and the shops that tend to be uh, closing have been shops that perhaps have slightly detached attitude towards the retail experience I guess and I guess what indie bookshops do better than say often not always but often more than a chain bookshop is that you have staff that are incredibly invested in the bookshop itself so whether they've personally curated the stock you know they can be really really specialized and sell quite strange things but sell them well, like, like for example, there's this lovely little bookshop in London called Persephone Books, which has yes. actually been going for quite a while, which specialises in books by women authors who have gone out of print with nice end papers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> usually very nice covers. <laughs> they, they, they publish as well as, yeah. as tell. Exactly. And it's that sort of, I think uh, that can be sometimes what people are after is a sort of sense of a... Um, 
uh, expertise that can be inherent in like quite a sort of small retail space because they have to really concentrate on uh, you know what they're going to sell so you do often see indie bookshops that have a very specialized um, focus in terms of the books that they stock. It's been a bad year for libraries at the same time as it's a good year for bookshops is do you think yes. that bookshops are taking over from libraries in that booksellers have that thing that one always says of a good librarian that they're able to point you in the direction you always you never knew you wanted to go? Well I don't know I mean it is a service that both are providing. I mean, the, the what decline in libraries is just simply a function of the the catastrophic level of funding of local government, isn't it? Yeah. I think people would like to go to libraries. People think librarians are great in the same way that a good bookseller is great. But just that the government has been uh, cutting the knees of local government for for a little while now. So that, that only goes for a certain amount of time. And I'd guess that I would almost say that perhaps there isn't too much crossover in that the reason people often use libraries is that they can't afford to buy books. Um, so whether these people are actually going to bookshops to buy books because they can't go to their library anymore, I'm not sure whether. Well, that sometimes would be true. they sometimes they don't buy books. Much Ado is a little bookshop in the just on on the South Downs Walk, which is one of my favourites, and it has armchairs. Mm-hmm. And if you're going, you're very tired halfway <laughs> halfway through a leg across the South Downs. You just go and sit in their armchairs and <laughs> pretend to be maybe going to buy one of their secondhand books. Does and they actually they actually sometimes even give you cookies when you're in your armchair. Oh, what really? <laughs> <laughs> and then you just leave. I'd be so guilty. I'd buy like 50 books because they gave me a biscuit. Uh, but, but the problem is, as they know, then you'd have to put it in your rucksack and take it the, the rest of your uh, walk along true. the South Downs. Part of it, I think, is also this uh, uh, realisation of the kind of smallness not being a problem. I think a bookshop used to think mm. 20, 30 years ago that it had to have lots of books so you could find the thing you were looking for. Mm. But the existence of Amazon, which has got everything, um, and the, the also combined with the fact of just-in-time delivery means that bookshops now think that all they need to do is offer a kind of window into things, an experience that can't be replicated by Amazon's awful kind of try this next kind of piece of software, mm. and know that if you want a book, they can get it for you the next day. Yeah, exactly. So that's the difference. I love this. We, I think we're going to have to coin a new set of phrases, which is the Everything, which is the huge, great <laughs> bookshop, and the Sprint, which is the little bookshop, which uh, yeah. is specialist and will get you what you want very quickly. The Everything. <laughs> to explore what's behind all this, we thought we'd pick up the phone to one of our favourite bookshops, Mr B's Emporium of Reading Delights in Bath, the picturesque West Country city immortalised in a million Jane Austen adaptations. Hi, Nick. Hi, how's it going? Uh, hi, Nick. Hi. Uh, we thought of you because we all love Mr B's Emporium, um, not least because it's possibly the only bookshop in the world that spawned its own folk band. We played a bit of the bookshop band earlier. So now you're also, you also happen to be president of the Booksellers Association who released these figures. It's quite a small increase. Yes. Uh, is it significant? It is significant because you, well, I think it's significant for a couple of reasons. One is that for 20 years, you know, as was much reported uh, across the media and by everyone, and well-known bookshops were declining in numbers. And, you know, they had to face an online competitor who is, you know, uh, out of control at times. And we had to, uh, and various other things and the arrival of e-books and everything. And, and we've come through that period. And now this is the third year of growth. It is small growth. I think, you know, the net growth is is tiny, but it's it's growth. And there aren't actually that many sectors. The other reason it's important, aren't many sectors on the high street of, of retail that are growing at all. Um, so I think it is a big statement about the way, well, a few things. One, the way bookshops have figured out yeah, it might be what we're doing, or if you look at a different bookstore, it might be they do something completely different that works for their market. But whatever it is, they've really got a handle on their identity and what it is they need to do 
to make it work for their community and um, uh, so they figured out how to how to thrive despite all those threats and inequities that exist and and I think that's a that's a really good thing and I think maybe it's because we've all uh, books were the first people to face uh, big big competition from online and maybe just we've sort of we've taken a lot of hard hits but we've kind of learned learned our way around it now do you get people who come into the bookshop and sit there and list, take your advice and then say thanks i'm going to go and see what the discount's like online uh you know the more hands-on you are the more people enjoy meeting your booksellers uh the less that happens it is always going to happen to a degree of course and but you know i've also had customers where you know, they've kind of admitted that they might need to do that, uh, you know, and a few years later when they're like, for example, if they're not a student anymore, they're earning a salary, then they then they suddenly come back and, you know, or maybe they have kids down the line and then they become your bookshop. I'd still rather they were in my bookshop than anywhere else. Of course, I'd rather they bought the book from me. And of course, it can be galling. But I think the more you engage with people and just chat to people about books and what we find is people come to us to talk to each of our individual booksellers, they have these little sort of weird cults of personality develop around your booksellers. So, oh, you need a book on, uh, you know, you need a feminist sci-fi novel where you've got to go and see X or Y. Would, is there any chance that you, you're going to do a James Daunt and expand and become a mogul and have lots of shops? Or, or will you just stay at Mr. B's in Bath? One of the reasons, you know, it's good that for us that the subscription side of our business has grown is because I don't need to i can still do that from one basic geographic location obviously i go to and fro to london a bit with the booksellers association anyway um i don't know we never set out to have lots of different um physical locations i'm not saying i never would uh but it's it's never been a plan bookshops and you know it, it's a careful economic balancing act they uh, it's fantastic that, ev- that we're seeing them open up here there and everywhere now but each one knows how how tough it is to get it up and running so I, I, that's not my top priority well i can hear voices in the background and i think that your customers are, await you and i'm feeling rather guilty about taking you away i hope from they're them. awaiting so- me I hope <laughs> <laughs> we're going to let you go now but thanks very much you're welcome And now, after the break, we'll be talking with the novelist Samantha Harvey about her catastrophic lack of sleep. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. After four finely crafted novels, including The Wilderness, Dear Thief, and 2018's The Western Wind, Samantha Harvey suddenly found herself unable to sleep. Not sleeping badly, or sleeping a bit, but not sleeping at all. Her response is a restless, urgent memoir of the year she spent not sleeping, the shapeless unease. When she came to the studio, she began by reading a passage from the book where she offers some clarifications. When I don't sleep, which is very often, I don't sleep at all. It's not so much that I'm a bad sleeper these days, it's that I'm a non-sleeper. I am a bad sleeper too, but nights of bad sleep are the good nights because they involve sleep. When I don't sleep, it's not that I feel tired so much as assaulted. In the morning after a night of no sleep, my eyes are sore and tender and can barely open. My joints ache. There's a taste in my mouth which isn't like any other taste, only like a feeling, and that feeling is defeat. My skull aches evenly across its hemisphere. Pain shoots up to some old scars on the crown of my head. I eye the world with suspicion and everything in it seems to stand back from me with hostility and hatred. There's a force at work that doesn't wish for my well-being. It feels personal. I go up to bed at night. I get beaten up. I come downstairs in the morning. 
Then I go about the day as if things were normal and I hadn't been beaten up, and everyone else treats me as if I hadn't been beaten up, and that way I survive, but no more than that. When I don't sleep, I spend the night searching the intricacies of my past, trying to find out where I went wrong, trawling through childhood to see if the genesis of the insomnia is there. There's terror when a basic animal need isn't met. At first you fear death, then a worse thing happens. You fear life. You no longer want your life, not on these terms. When I don't sleep, and don't sleep, and don't sleep, I don't want my life. Neither do I have in me the propulsion, courage, know-how, to take it. So I have to endure my life when it's unendurable, and this is an impasse. When I don't sleep, I lie still for several hours with my heart pounding, as if evading some beast. When the adrenaline has built in me, I break, and I get up, and hit things, the wall, my head, my head against the wall. I might howl, I might scream. I'll pace, pace, as if trying to stalk down an old, better self that has outrun me. Thanks very much indeed for that. So I guess I wanted to start by asking, how did you find yourself with such a lack of sleep? I still don't really know. I, I just stopped sleeping quite abruptly a couple of years ago. and Just like that, one night to the next? And it probably wasn't quite as abrupt as that. When I think back now, it's, it seemed very abrupt. Probably it was I was having some sort of disturbed sleep for a, for a few weeks before that, but nothing that you would call insomnia. And then I think I had a night of zero sleep, and I didn't know that that was even possible until <laughs> then. And it was as if once my brain and body learned that that was a thing that you could do... <laughs> It knew no bounds. Just when it did <laughs> it. decided that that's what and it would do. Did you find yourself looking for reasons? For yeah, I mean, I think this book is largely that. It's a, a search for, for reasons or clues or something that would enable me to uncover this thing in myself. That was the only thing you could write, the only thing you could think about almost. Yeah, just obsessed by mm. it, completely obsessed by so it. So what were the reasons you hit upon? Oh... Life is enigmatic and strange and humans <laughs> are complex. There are certainly triggers. I, I know that there were things going on at the time I got insomnia. And I had been feeling for probably a year or two before that more anxious than usual. And not just in a sort of vaguely worrying about things, but in a in a more sort of pathological way just anxious about things I had no need to be anxious about but I found myself getting locked into this quite fretful state of mind so I'm sure it, it the, the way was paved for it it didn't come from nowhere but it certainly felt like it came from nowhere Why not write another novel as your unnamed friend suggests? Well, I couldn't nothing came to me Just couldn't? Impossible? It was impossible, yeah I didn't have an idea for a start and I can't really blame that on having insomnia but I didn't have the bandwidth for it while I was in the depths of insomnia I didn't have the the capacity for that the sort of architecture of a novel you know the the, the, the planning the scheming the thinking of, of character arcs that kind of thing the difficult business of imagining stuff exactly of, of yeah that, that huge effort of invention which I always find hard anyway that's for me the hardest part of writing a novel I started writing because it's the thing I know 
how to do best, I suppose. It's the the place I always go to in myself when I need to be grounded and I need some solace and some structure. So I just started writing without any plan. Mm. Do, do you write about Brexit, about changes in your own body, and also you write about the death of a cousin as well as maybe another thing that might have triggered it, which is strange or maybe perfectly natural because death and sleep seem so intimately connected. Yeah, they are. I mean, there are, there are so many parallels. Obviously, when you go to sleep, it is a kind of mini death because you are unconscious for that time. You're not aware of the world or of yourself, except through dreams. Um, and I think there is that fear, you know, of going to sleep and while you're asleep, you're powerless. Um, you don't have any agency. Uh, so I, I, I think there are parallels between the two and then it's very well documented that bereavement causes sleeplessness. Um, I mean, my cousin's death really affected me and we weren't that close. You know, we I had known him quite well as a child, but I think it was more that his death sort of opened the door to a whole lot of, of possible loss. I thought, well, if one of my own contemporaries can die and somebody I you know ran around the garden with when I was a child then what what keeps me safe what keeps anyone else around me safe and it was just that a very anxious frame of mind that I was in that started to extrapolate in all sorts of uh, catastrophic ways and I think it was you know it's a kind of midlifey thing as well where you start to look at what's ahead of you and some of it doesn't look that promising. Uh, I guess I'm wondering about the difference between this piece of writing and your other work as well, because I mean there are moments in The Shapeless Unease when your own experience that what your own pain seems to come through almost raw, this kind of wound, almost gaping on the page. Was this directness a kind of release or was it something that you had to work for because the memoir, because the form demanded it? I mean there was just so little design in this book I wrote whatever came out when I sat down to write and I had no idea what that would be. And it wrote itself very easily. I mean, I I, I sort of sometimes say that I wrote this book by accident or I wrote it um, without quite noticing because I, whereas with writing a novel, it's very premeditated. You can't write a novel without um, without noticing unless you're Stephen King, apparently, and <laughs> wrote it when drunk. But... I certainly can't write a novel without noticing I'm doing it. But this, I think because when you're, when you're very sleep deprived, you're in a state that is really raw and really edgy and has this kind of very unpleasant electric energy to it. And it's very open. Everything is, um, is kind of available in you it, in, a, in a very um, uneasy way. There's nothing... You know, there's nothing kind of expansive about that. It's just, it's just really raw, and in a funny way, it's quite conducive to creativity. And because it's, there's not, you can't hold anything back. Your filters are gone. So that's where I wrote this book from, and I had no uh, sense that it would become a book, and certainly not a published one. And I do have. Um, reservations about that even now as someone who's only ever written fiction and even then fiction that's very unautobiographical. 
it's, I mean, your your fiction is is a, a is a, an extremely careful mechanism that gets from this point to that point, as you say, according to a plan. This is almost the opposite of that. It's a kind of shapelessness which reflects the shapelessness of your of your uh, mental state. Absolutely, but, and then again, you know, I think all the things that this book is obsessed by and preoccupied by are the same things that my novels are obsessed by <laughs> and the same things that I keep turning over and over all the way through my writing life, you know, faith and um, questions of what, of why we're here, of who we are, of selfhood. The book is so much about the, the question of whether we can know ourselves, whether we even have a self to know as such, whether there's anything there to find. Um, and in the case of The Shapeless Unease, this desperate need to find something because it might be the answer or it might unlock something of, of the enigma of why I wasn't sleeping. So in a way, I don't think there's anything new in this book that I haven't already looked at in my novels. It's just that I've turned the lens on myself and it's much more direct. And uh, as I say, much more raw. I mm. mean, do you think that that's a, a tone that you now will be able to use in the rest of your writing, Some, something you can access elsewhere? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, there's um, there's something very uncurated about this book, um, and the the effortlessness of writing it is something I would really like to be able to <laughs> to emulate in other books. Something about the openness of of sitting down for this and writing for the for the sake of writing, writing out of the need to write and, and for no other reason, just because you need to do it, not because it pays your mortgage or your publisher is waiting for it or <laughs> because you've got the, an idea of a character in mind, but because you need to do it and your day can't go ahead without you doing it. Um, that sort of really urgent kind of disposition that I was in when I wrote this book, I definitely would like to be able to emulate that more and there's always been some of that in my writing but never as direct as as this one and you know one one really substantially great thing that has come out of having insomnia for me is this book and the the um the way it's restored my faith in writing and my own need to write you know never mind whether the world needs me to write but <laughs> <laughs> my own need to write even if it's slightly disconcerting to see the results yeah. you, you couldn't quite leave fiction entirely behind though could you what's what's your story about a man who loses his wedding ring while robbing a cash machine what's that doing in the middle of a memoir about insomnia yeah it's a good question what is it doing there i mean <laughs> because i didn't really ever think this would be published. I never worried about the, the sort of coherence of its form. That's but, just what you needed to write that day. Yeah. So in uh, there's a section in in this book that's about language and recursion and so on. And in that, I was writing about this this tribe of um, people in the Brazilian Amazon and their language for some reason because it was one of those things that I was fleetingly obsessed by while I was sleep deprived and. I gave a an example sentence just out of out of thin air for a, as a recursive sentence and and that sentence was about a man who robs a cash machine and loses his wedding ring and blah 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 and then probably a couple of weeks later I thought again in that weird obsessive 
state of mind that sleep deprivation puts you in, I thought, I must write that story. <laughs> this is the next morning after some awful night. Yes, yeah. With, you know, often with no sleep at all. Um, I thought, I've got to write that story. I've got to find out about that man. Um, I mean, you say that you're writing about recursion sort of as if it was just one of those things that you were sort of thinking <laughs> about. But isn't recursion, in some sense, the seat of consciousness, that our ability to reflect on ourselves is what it means to feel something in some sense? And so therefore, isn't it kind of the, the problem or the opposite to sleep? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, because I, I start that, that section, what prompted that section on recursion in the book is a memory of of my mum um, singing The Windmills of Your Mind when she was doing the housework. And I, I had this very vivid memory of that and it was a, a sort of, um, I just remembered the sound of her singing and then associated that with, with me sort of just playing away at something while she was doing that. And that song is something I have grown up with and that has always felt it's always, I mean, it's such a vivid song anyway, but it's always felt like it's expressed something about what it is to be conscious, that, that funny drain of um, circling thoughts that sort of go round and round and never get anywhere. Um, and The tunnel that's leading to a tunnel of its own. Exactly. And that, that's the human mind, it seems to me. And it, that is the mind that you experience very... Um, vividly at three in the morning, you know, there's, there's, as you say, the opposite of sleep. It's it's not just that you're awake, it's that you're awake with your mind, which won't stop. And in fact, the more tired you get, the, the less it, it will stop. It just gets more and more insistent and nagging and often meaningless. <laughs> you describe a moment in the pub shortly before you began having trouble with sleep when you had a powerful sensation that everything around you might not be real, a worry you describe as anxiety's jackpot. But was your philosophical training no help in countering this sense of metaphysical vertigo? Yeah, it's no help at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the, the sort of first-year philosophy undergrad thing of what if, what if I'm a brain in a vat... Um, and when yeah, you're a standard problem, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And when you're 18, you think, oh, what if I'm a brain in a vat? And then when you're 44, you think, oh, what if I'm a brain in a vat? <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly it, it becomes a real problem. Well, it does if you're me, anyway. Yeah, and you weren't convinced by any of the kind of standard answers. Because, it, you know, what could a standard answer be? You know, the, the whole conundrum of it is if you really are a brain in a vat and you've been programmed to believe in your own objective reality, of course you're going to believe in your own objective reality. So you can never know if you are or not. And for a while, that really troubled me. I think it still does trouble me if I think about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, you're not convinced by Occam's razor, you know. Why invent a whole kind of thing about that if it's much more straightforward to imagine that actually reality exists? That's reality isn't straightforward, is it? I mean, that's that's the problem. Yeah, but your vat has to sit in some reality, so you've got two of them. Oh, no! Isn't that worse? Oh, <laughs> uh, OK. It's, yeah, not, it's not doing it for you. <laughs> I'll see. I'll go away and think about it tonight. <laughs> and maybe just philosophy, maybe rationality is just not enough to deal with this kind of existential terror. Yeah, I think it's not, because it's not... Philosophy is, 
and logic is rational and, and fear is not rational and that's its whole uh, that that's how it gets its existence you know it it, it gets into the, the gaps between rationality and it's uh, you know and it, and it become it starts to eclipse reason and I think that's where it takes hold what about the constellations of God well I, I have a section in the book about um, a, a conversation with a Christian friend of mine who's deeply thoughtful intelligent um, sort of wonderful thinker and really rigorous in her thinking but she also has Christianity and I and I just have always envied it so much her capacity to believe and it's not that her belief is her belief is flawless um, and unerring she doubts all the time and I think that's a healthy part of belief but still she has this belief in God and I thought you know at this point when I was having a conversation with her I was very sleep deprived and I began to think in my own slightly mad way that if only I could believe in God, then I would start sleeping. Maybe that was the thing that I was lacking, you know. Um, but I've never had the capacity to. I've always wanted to. The, the more I look at religion and science, you say, the less difference I see between them. Uh, I mean, there are obviously many scientific results. We can't go out and test them all for ourselves, but many scientific results we have to take on trust. But isn't there a very big difference between the kind of belief we have in science and the kind of belief we have in, in God? Yes, there's a huge difference but when I think about reason as the sort of vehicle for science and it's always reason that it reason versus faith you know that is brought up um, we arrive at our scientific knowledge through reason and we arrive at our religious knowledge through faith I just I look at reason and I begin to think well reason is a capacity of the human mind it's the only thing we have and it's sort of a platitude to say that if we use reason we will arrive at things that seem rational to us of course that's the point that's the point of reason but how are we to know that reason is any is anything worth having you know we it just allows us to arrive at a set of things that we call rational and that we therefore decide because we've reasoned them, must be worth knowing. But it's more that I'm questioning reason as the sort of uh, the golden ticket. <laughs> I, I guess I guess I, the obvious response to that is that there are plenty of scientists who cast doubt on whether you can believe in faith for results about the earth or history or morality or whatever. But there are very few men of God of whatever sort who get worried about getting on a jet plane or using a smartphone. Science kind of works at some level. Although there are plenty of, of scientists who who have a religious belief, or uh, and certainly more so in the past, maybe less so now. But still, I think when you, when when physics gets very theoretical, it becomes uh, quite faith based. There are many people who think string theory is just a pile of um, imagination. Exactly, and we've arrived at so much of our of our scientific knowledge through through leaps of faith. So actually, I don't think there's that much difference. I completely accept the the difference between faith and reason, and how one looks much more sturdy than the other. Reason looks much more sturdy than faith, but I just question whether it really is. 
another thread that runs through the book is the way you talk about the doctors who you went to ask for help who sit there stony or sphinx-like or even combative Mm. do medical professionals scientists of a sort do these medical professionals have a trouble with with sleeplessness well my doctors (laughs) (laughs) did actually i did find a very sympathetic doctor in the end but even she was stumped by it you know she didn't have any answers it's fair enough I, I don't really expect doctors to have answers to something as as mysterious as sleep we don't understand sleep that's the the bottom line nobody understands why we do it or how we do it um but I think as a, a sort of a separate uh, issue that the NHS is is woefully ill-equipped to deal with insomnia and I think it's because it falls somewhere between mental and physical and it's very difficult to sort of tease the two out so nobody really knows where to begin with it so they don't yeah, as, as well as the kind of well-documented troubles that the NHS has dealing with mental health problems at all it's yes. kind of it's a perfect sweet spot for getting ignored I suppose. absolutely yeah Almost a quarter of a million people read an extract um, from the Shapeless Unease on the Guardian website with an avalanche Mm. of comments on social media from readers who recognise themselves in your pain. Mm. Do you think that's a sign that sleeplessness is a modern epidemic or do you think we're just able to talk about something that we were never able to discuss before? It's a really good question. I just don't know the answer to it. Um, I guess people have always... There, some people have always slept badly and, and sleep problems have been around since the dawn of time and I don't think we can blame everything on the modern world. On the smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or Brexit. <laughs> um, but there is something about the world we live in now that is that has a kind of nervous energy to it in the way that we're drip-fed information, a lot of it news which is often fearful and it's coming at us in sort of not you don't sit down and watch the news anymore you just get sort of fed it through the day one headline at a time and the headlines have to become more and more kind of shouty to grab your attention in this this huge sea of noise and they're just it just feels like there's a kind of whir of of energy and tension around that we are all immersed in um i mean i don't even have a phone um you know i still somehow through osmosis get that that drip feed of opinion that's quickly followed by reaction that's quickly followed by another reaction and then someone being taken down or shamed in some way and it's we live in such a reactive world and not a very kind of wisely responsive world and I, I think that must in some way contribute towards it. If writing is dreaming, as you suggest, then can writing help the insomniac? It helped me hugely. I think it, it didn't help in the sense that I finished what I was writing and mm. lo, I was cured, <laughs> <laughs> if only. But um, the act of writing was a huge solace and very grounding and I think there's something about writing that kind of is a form of alchemy for me where you can take the raw material of yourself that's sort of you know even when you're going through something that's very rough and very dark 
you can take that and you can make it into a sentence and you can make it into a beautiful sentence and somehow in doing that you've alchemized it and then you stack all those sentences up and you've created something that is bigger than yourself and that is wiser than yourself. The the cure for insomnia you suggest is perhaps wild swimming or maybe it's the realization that no things are fixed everything passes this too is is, is that the secret? Well it's not the, it's not the secret um, and it's a very tongue-in-cheek cure but when you when I get into cold water into a lake or a river and I put my head under the water in that moment I'm cured of insomnia um, for that moment for that least. moment yeah it there's it's the it's the antithesis of sleeplessness just getting your head into cold water and feeling the sort of release of of the pressure and being utterly invigorated by that and it being all enveloping so you can't think about anything else just this water that's around you and um that has been very sustaining for me it's not a cure how are you sleeping now uh better not well but better thank you (laughs) samantha harvey speaking to richard lee the shapeless unease is published by jonathan cape in the uk and grove press in the u.s And that's all for this week. Next week's episode will be out on Wednesday instead of Tuesday, and we will be speaking to the best-selling author Janine Cummings in a very raw and emotional interview. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And remember, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Opoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening. great podcasts from The Guardian. Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.